Good morning, everyone, in my St. Andrew's Bible class. It is your favorite Bible teacher here from my home office. And uh, in just a moment, we will be returning to our journey through the book of Joshua, Joshua chapter 8. Let's begin as we do each week with a word of prayer. Gracious Father, we thank you for bringing us together online to read and to study your word. Please open our minds and our hearts to what you have to say, that in better understanding you, we may come to love you more deeply. God our Father, you sent your Son into the world to be its true light. Pour out the Holy Spirit he promised us to sow truth in our hearts and awaken in us obedience to the faith. May we all be born again to new life and enter the fellowship of your one holy people. Grant this through the Lord Jesus Christ your Son, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Well, would you with me find your way to Joshua chapter 8. We are going to, in a moment, continue our journey with General Joshua and a narrative of the conquest of the land of Israel. This is lecture number 7 in the spring quarter, and my intention is to bring to you eight lectures this spring quarter. So next Monday would be our final offering. Just in time, I think, for our churches to at least partially reopen. I'm not sure how things are going to be handled at St. Andrews, but I do know that Bishop Olmsted is very uh, excited about getting the churches opened as early as next week, which would be the Sunday after Mother's Day. Although I think the attendance will be limited, as I understand it, to about 25% of the total capacity for seating in the church. And in addition, and I'm quite sure that St. Andrews will go along with this, uh, there'll also be daily liturgy. So the daily Mass, because so few people attend relative to the size of the church, allows for social distancing appropriately. Now, having said all of that, I don't want to press my case to open the Bible class for one final session. So you understand why it makes sense to finish this lecture series of the spring via this podcast format and look forward then with uh, some certainty that we can gather in August. And in August, we can follow our summer series that I'm going to entitle A Month with Moses, the Man and Friend of God. So, having said that, we will return then to the book of Joshua. And if all goes well, because much of the material that we'll cover this week and next week can be covered in a summary manner, we'll finish the book of Joshua in the time frame of these eight lectures. Now, coming back to the book of Joshua, we read last week about the successful conquest of Jericho and the unsuccessful attempt of conquest of a village just to the north of Jericho known as Ai. And remember that village was compromised and victory was snatched from the Israelites because people had taken for themselves as spoils of war uh, items of great value that God had told them to put under the ban, which meant that you were not to 
personally benefit from a victory that God was providing for you. Well, this directive was compromised, and as a result of that, a fellow named Ikan was found guilty and summarily punished. And one of the things we pointed out at the end of chapter 7, in verse 25, is that punishment involved stoning, and we read that all of Israel stoned him to death. That is, everyone had to be in complete agreement that what he did was so egregious that the sentence of death was justified and that they would all equally participate. If anyone, remember John chapter 8, dropped a stone, that death sentence would have been commuted. This is a time of military engagement and the tribunal, if you will, that assessed the breach of conduct on behalf of Akan uh, was swift and sure. Now, we move to chapter 8. After this, the Lord then said to General Joshua, Do not be afraid or dismayed. I want you this time to take your entire army with you and attack that city. Because, again, remember, those people are being evicted for sins committed ever more egregiously over the course of the previous 10 biblical generations. God tells Joshua in verse 1, I have delivered the king into your power and his people and his city and their land. And do to Ai and its king what you did to Jericho and its king, except that now you may take its spoil and livestock as plunder. This would be payment for your service as God's members of his military. Now, this is how it is to take place. You need to set an ambush behind the city. This is military tactic talk. So Joshua and all the soldiers prepared to attack the city. Picking out 30,000 warriors, Joshua sent them off by night with these specific orders. See that you ambush the city from behind. Do not be very far from the city. Everyone must be ready in advance. And then the rest of the people and I, the rest of the army, will come up to the city. And when they make a sortie against us, seeing us advance toward their gates as they did the last time, we will feign terror and flee from them. And they will keep coming out after us until we have drawn them away from the city. Because they'll think, look, they are fleeing from us as they did the last time they attacked. And when we flee, Joshua learns from the Lord, that is, when you flee, Joshua, with your forces, then your other men rise from the ambush and take possession of the city, which the Lord your God will deliver into your power. When you have taken the city, set it on fire in obedience to the Lord's command, these are my orders to you. General Joshua then sent them away, that is, part of the army, and they went to the place of ambush, taking up their position west of the city toward Bethel. And Joshua, in anticipation of the next day's event, spent the night with his army. Well, the plan worked to perfection, just as God had indicated it would. And at the end of verse 17, everyone in the city abandoned the city, trying to pursue what they thought was the fleeing army of the Israelites leaving it open as they pursued Israel. And then in verse 18, the Lord directed Joshua, Now stretch out the javelin in your hand, stop, turn around, point to the city, for I will deliver the city into your power. 
So Joshua stretched out the javelin in his hand toward the city. And as soon as he did, the men in the ambush rose from their post, rushed in, captured the city, and set it ablaze. By the time the army of the city looked back, the smoke from the city was already rising to the heavens. Uh, escape in any direction was impossible because the Israelites retreating toward the wilderness had now turned on their pursuers. For when Joshua and the main body of the Israelites saw that the city had been taken by ambush and was going up in smoke, they struck back at the forces of Ai. Since those in the city came out to intercept them, Ai's army was hemmed in by the Israelites on both sides, who cut them down without any fugitive or survivor except the king, whom they took alive and brought to Joshua. Again, this is exaggerative biblical storytelling. They won a decisive victory, and they describe it in these exaggerative terms. We know terms, but we know the king was taken captive. So when Israel finished killing all the inhabitants of Ai in the open, that is, who engaged them militarily, who had pursued them into the wilderness, and all of them to the last man fell by the sword, then all of Israel returned and put to the sword those inside the city. Now this is a graphic, violent description, and I have no other explanation for it except to note that whoever God says is going to be decimated will, in fact, be decimated. There fell that day, in verse 25, a total of 12,000 men and women, the entire population of the city. Joshua kept the javelin in his hand stretched out until he had carried out the ban on all the inhabitants of the city. And the Israelites took for themselves, as God had said they could, plunder, livestock, and spoils of the city, according to the command the Lord issued to Joshua. Then Joshua destroyed the city by fire, reducing it to an everlasting mound of ruin. As our author says, it remains today. He had the king killed, hanged him on a tree until the evening. Then at sunset, Joshua ordered the body removed from that tree and cast at the entrance of the city gate, where a great heap of stones was piled up over it, which remains there to the present day. Later on, at a place called Mount Abaal, which is very near, i.e., Joshua built the Lord, the God of Israel, an altar, an altar of hun-hewn stones on which no iron tool had been used. You have to find the stones in sufficient number and then, using ingenuity over the course of time, fashion them together so the weight of stone at shape will hold everything together, and built that altar just as Moses the servant of the Lord, had commanded the Israelites, as recorded in the book of the law, the book of Deuteronomy. On this altar, once completed, a public ceremony was held. They sacrificed burnt offering to the Lord and make communion sacrifices as well. There, in the presence of the Israelites, Joshua inscribed upon the stones a copy of the law written by Moses, the ten words, and all of Israel resident alien and native alike with their elders and officers and judges stood on either side of the ark facing the Levitical priests who were carrying the Ark of the Covenant. Half of them were facing Mount Gerizim and half of them Mount Ebal, just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had first commanded for the blessing of the people of Israel. Once they reached that part of the land, they are in a valley 
and these two heights on either side. Then were read aloud all the words of the law, the blessings and the curses, exactly as written in the book of the law. Every single word that Moses had commanded Joshua read aloud to the entire assembly, including the women and children and the resident aliens among them, people who had joined them over the course of the 40 years of wandering, initially coming out of captivity with them. Remember Exodus chapter 12, we called them members of the mixed multitude. So this was a grand celebration. Burnt offering, remember, offered immolated in the fire, complete, whole, and entire to the Lord. Communion offerings, only parts of animals are offered to the Lord, internal organs. The rest of the animal is returned to the supplicant. So it's meat then that you enjoy eating, expressing your desire to be in proper communion with the Lord. And they are at this time. Now, eventually, as time passes, chapter 9, news reached all the kings west of the Jordan in the mountain regions and in the Shephelah, which is the hill country leading up to the central highlands. We call them the foothills, effectively. And also, all of those living along the coast of the Great Sea, as far north as Lebanon. They were Hittites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hiveites, and Jebusites. And they gathered together to launch a common attack against Joshua and Israel. They did this because of what had reached their ears, news of the fall of Jericho and the decimation, whole and entire, of the city of Ai, the building of the altar, the assembly of the people in the public arena of that valley floor. They knew that they were up against a formidable foe. On hearing what Joshua had done to Jericho and Ai, and the city of Gibeon came up with a plan. In verse 4, they formed their own scheme. Listen to what they did. It was very clever, really. They chose provisions for a journey, but they made use of old sacks for their donkeys and old wineskins that were torn and then mended evidence of constant use. They then set out from their city wearing old patched sandals and shabby garments, and all the bread they had in their possession was dry and was crumbly. Thus they journeyed to Joshua in the camp at Gilgal, where they said to him and to the Israelites, that would be the assembled elders assisting Joshua, we have come from a far off land and want to make a covenant with you. Will you make a covenant with us? But the Israelites replied to these interlopers, they're from the village of Gibeon, which is not at all far from where their camp of the Israelites is located. You may be living in land that is ours. How then can we make a covenant with you? We're not allowed to. We're to drive out original inhabitants of the land, not to make a covenant with them. That's one of God's direct commandments. But they answered Joshua, uh, well, they answered him with a lie, saying, We are your servants. Who are you, I ask? Where do you come from? And they said, Well, your servants have come from a far-off land. And we came to you because of the fame of the Lord your God. For we have heard reports of all that he did for you in Egypt, and all that he did to the two kings of the Amorites beyond the Jordan, Sion, the king of Heshbon, and Og, the king of Bashan. 
who lived in Ashtaroth. So our elders and all the inhabitants of our land said to us, Take along provisions for the journey and go meet them. And say to them when you do, We are your servants. Now make a covenant with us. Look, our bread was still warm when we brought it from home as provisions the day we left to come to you. But now it's dry. It's crumbly. We've been traveling a great distance. Here, look at our wineskins, which were new when we filled them, but now they are torn. And look at our garments and sandals. They, too, are worn out from a very long journey. So the Israelite leaders partook of their provisions, testing them out to see if they were as old as they said, without inquiring of the Lord. They needed to ask the Lord through the agency of a priest whether or not these people were telling the truth. Joshua, without that divine discernment, made peace with them. They made a covenant to let them live, which the leaders of the community, the elders, sealed with an oath. Now, three days later, three days after the covenant was made, the Israelites heard that these people were actually from a place nearby and now would be living in Israel. The third day on the road going to find them, the Israelites came to their cities, but in verse 18 did not attack them because the leaders of the community had sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel, that they were not. When the entire community grumbled against the leaders, these all remonstrated with the community. We have sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel, and so we cannot harm them. God's name was invoked as part of that ceremony. And we can't shame the name of God by not carrying out the terms therein. Let us, therefore, verse 20, let them live and so deal with them that no wrath fall upon us because of the oath we have sworn to them, you see, in God's name. Thus the leader said to them, let them live and become hewers of wood and drawers of water for the entire community. So the community did as the leaders advised them. That's a biblical way of saying they can stay and they are under our protection. But while they stay and are under our protection, they will pay tribute to us. They, they will pay us a basic a tenancy so that they remain in the land. Now, after all of this was sor uh, sorted out, in verse 22, Joshua summoned the Gibeonites and asked them a question. Why did you deceive us? And say, we live far away from you, and in fact, you live right among us. Now you are accursed, every one of you shall always be a servant, a hewer of wood or a drawer of water for the house of my God. And they responded to Joshua, your servants, we were fully informed of how the Lord your God commanded Moses his servant, that you be given the entire land and that all its inhabitants be destroyed before you. Since, therefore, at your advance, we were in great fear for our lives, and we acted as we did. And now that we are in your power, do with us what is good and right in your eyes. And so Joshua did what he had decided, while he saved them from being killed by the Israelites. On that day, he made them, as they still are, those who will pay tribute to Israel, hewers of wood and drawers of water for the community, for the altar of the Lord and the place the Lord would choose. Now, meanwhile, there are other geopolitical forces afoot 
who would love to take Israel out and are looking for an opportunity to do so. We read in verse 10 about a king of Jerusalem. Remember, Jerusalem's a Jebusite city at this time. It's not obviously the site of the temple. The temple doesn't exist. This particular king of Jerusalem, Adonizek, heard that Joshua had captured Ai and had put it under the ban and had done to that city and its king as he had done to Jericho and its king and that the inhabitants of Gibeon had made peace with Israel remaining among them. There was great fear abroad because Gibeon was a great city, like one of the royal cities, even greater than Ai, and all its men were warriors. And if they sued for peace, if they used subterfuge to get a treaty of protection, this must mean that Israel's army was foreboding in size, skill, and ferocity. So the king of Jerusalem sent two compatriots, a king in Hebron, a king in Yarmouth, a king in Lachish, and a king in Eglon, with this message. Verse 4. Come and assist me, help me, attack Gibeon, for it has made peace with Joshua and the Israelites. What we will do, pick a fight with the Gibeonites and see if Israel comes to their rescue, and if they do, we will then fall upon them in great numbers. So those five kings gathered and the end of verse 5, with all their forces, and attacked Gibeon. Thereupon the Gibeonites sent up an appeal to Joshua in his camp, a messenger, do not abandon your servants, come up here quickly and save us, help us, because all the Amorite kings of the mountain country have joined together against us. So Joshua marched up from Gilgal with his army and all his warriors. The Lord said to Joshua, five kings arrayed, militarily clad, ready for engagement. Do not fear them, for I have delivered them into your power. Not one of them will be able to withstand you. After an all-night march from Gilgal, Joshua made a surprise attack upon them, and the Lord threw them into disorder before Israel. The Israelites inflicted a great slaughter on them at Gibeon and pursued them down the Beth Horon slope attacking them as far as Azekah and Machaedah. While they fled before Israel along the descent, the Lord hurled great stones from the heavens above on them all the way to Azekah, killing many. In fact, more died from these hailstones than the Israelites killed with the sword. Now, we could imagine that gigantic bowling ball-sized hail fell upon the fleeing army, crushing them, or that more than likely a hailstorm suddenly broke out, which is something that can easily happen in Israel then or now. And as they were fleeing for their lives, they began to slip and slide down the road because they're being pursued by the Israelites. The Israelites had the advantage of being higher in elevation, fell upon them, and that led to their demise. At the end of the day, in verse 12, it was then when the Lord delivered up the Amorites to the Israelites, that Joshua prayed to the Lord and said in the presence of Israel, and this prayer, very powerful, Sun, stand still at Gibeon. Moon, stand still in the valley of Ajilon. And the sun stood still and the moon stayed while the nation took vengeance on its foes. 
This is recorded in the book of Yashar. The sun halted halfway across the heavens, and not for an entire day did it press on. Never before or since was there a day like this, when the Lord obeyed the voice of a man. For the Lord fought for Israel, then Joshua and all of Israel returned to the camp at Gilgal. Now much ink has been spread, spent about trying to come to grips with how to interpret this prayer and its fulfillment. Is it literal or is it literary? I tend to fall on the side of understanding it in a literary manner. That is, the overcast skies that produce the sudden fall of hail that so wonderfully assisted the Israelites in pursuing the Amorites and gave them an advantage over their foes was something that Joshua wanted to see continue until the day of fighting came to an end. To that end, those clouds would have obscured the sun in the day and the moon rising in the early evening. Not that the sun and the moon literally stood still, but Figuratively, they did, obscured by the clouds, which produced that very timely cascade of hail that gave the day to Israelites in victory. All right, so now we come to the fate of those five kings. In chapter 10, verse 16, the five kings who had fled hid in a cave. When Joshua was told the five kings had been found hiding in a cave in Makadah, he said, Roll large stones to the mouth of the cave and post guards over it until I get there. But do not stay there yourselves. Continue to pursue your enemies and harry them in the rear. Do not allow them to reach their cities, for the Lord your God has delivered them into your power. Again, Joshua had prayed that the climactic conditions that gained victory over their enemies would continue, and as a result, they should seal that cave so that the five kings couldn't escape and give pursuit to the enemies. Now, once Joshua, in verse 20, and the Israelites had finally inflicted the last blows in this very great slaughter, and the survivors had escaped from them, some, into their fortified cities, the entire army returned to Joshua and the camp and Makeda and victory no one uttered a sound against the Israelites. And then Joshua said, Open the mouth of the cave and bring me those five kings. So they did. They brought out to him from the cave the five kings of Jerusalem and Hezbron and Yarmouth and Lachish and Egalaon. And when they brought the five kings out to Joshua, he summoned all the army of Israel and said to the commanders of the soldiers who had marched with him, Come forward and put your feet on the necks of these kings. A symbolic way of saying they have been defeated. So they came forward and put their feet upon their necks. Then Joshua said to them, Do not be afraid or dismayed. Be firm and steadfast. This is what the Lord will do to your enemies when you fight against them. And thereupon, General Joshua struck and killed the kings, hanging them on five trees where they remained until evening. At sunset, Joshua commanded that they be taken down from the trees and thrown into the cave where they had hidden. Over the mouth of the cave, large stones were placed, which again remained to that day. They became an object lesson to anyone that would rise up against Israel. Now, the chapter concludes in verses 40 through 43 with a summary 
basically of the success that General Joshua and his army had in these initial forays. In verse 40, Joshua conquered the entire land, that is, the mountain regions, the Negev, the desert, the Shephelah, the foothills, and the mountain slopes with all their kings. He left no survivors, but put under the ban every living being, just as the Lord, the God of Israel, had commanded, meaning that they fled for their lives or died in active engagement against the Israelites. Joshua conquered them from Kadesh Barnea in the south to Gaza, the Gaza Strip on the coast of the Mediterranean, and all throughout the land of Goshen to Gibeon. All these kings and their lands Joshua captured all at once, for the Lord, the God of Israel, fought for Israel. Thereupon Joshua, with all of Israel, returned to the camp at Gilgal. So Joshua has secured the eastern side of the Jordan River, the Jordan River Valley, the villages leading up to the central highlands, the central highlands, and also deserts to the south and locales to the west. All he has left is a conquest that will take him northward. So that's chapter 11. When Yabin, who's king of Hatzor, Hatzor is in the northern part of the land, learned all of this, he sent a message to his compatriot, the king of Ma'da'an, and to another king in Shimra'an, and to the northern kings in the mountain regions, in the Shavalah, and in the Nafhath Da'or to the west. These were also Canaanites, Amorites, Hittites, Perizzites, and Jebusites, who lived in the mountain regions to the north, and the Hibbites, who lived at the foot of Mount Hermon in the land of Mizpah. So, again, Every one of these kings mentioned lives in the northern part of Israel. They came out with all their troops, bringing an army as numerous, it appeared, as the sands on the seashore, and with a multitude of horses and chariots. All these kings made a pact together, and they marched to the waters of Merom, where they encamped to fight against Israel. Now the Lord said to Joshua, Do not fear them. For by this time tomorrow, I will present them as slain to you. And, and when you then have the victory, you must hamstring their horses and burn their chariots so they can never be repurposed in engagements ever again. So Joshua, with his whole army, came upon them suddenly at the waters of Merom and fell upon them. The Lord delivered them into the power of the Israelites, who defeated them and pursued them all the way to greater Sidon, uh, to Misrephaim and eastward to the valley of Mispay. They struck them all down, leaving no survivors. Again, that general biblical exaggerative summary. Joshua did to them as the Lord had commanded. He hamstrung their horses and burned their chariots. Rather like ordering that captured tanks have their treads removed. Now at that time, in verse 10, Joshua, turning back, captured Hatzor and struck down its king. He was the mastermind behind this attempt to take Israel out with the sword. For Hatzor, formerly, was the chief of all of those kingdoms. He also struck down with the sword every person there, carrying out the ban till none was left alive. And then Hatzor itself was burned. 
all the cities of those kings and the kings themselves Joshua captured and put to the sword, carrying out the band on them as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded. However, Israel did not destroy by fire any of the cities built on these mounds, except Hatzor, which Joshua burned. Again, you would never put a city to the flames unless you were directed to do so by God, because once you defeat them and drive them out, your people can then walk in and inhabit those vacated spaces. The exception is Hatzor. Now, we visit Hatzor when we travel to Israel, and people are still signing up for our trip in October. It looks like it's a go. We're holding out good hope that that will be the case. We do know that Israel has only recently opened its borders for internal travel, trade, and touring among an Israelite population. But as soon as July are opening their borders to cruise traffic. And so, again, we know that by October, it seems that we'll be able to fly there and tour the land. That would be a wonderful trip. And when we do, we travel to Hatzor. And one of the things we know dutifully in the archaeological excavation is a line clearly marked by archaeologists that goes all around the ancient complex, which was mammoth in size and commanded a strong military choke point along the Via Maris, that major trade route coursing north and south through the land of Israel, that there is a line indicating where the city had been burned at this precise time in history, right around 1100 BC. It's evidence of Joshua chapter 11, that Joshua actually set Hatzor ablaze and the city burned and then was built up later over the course of time, because it's geographic location is so important to control. So again, we have evidence of that. It's a unique way of tying the book of Joshua to history through archaeology. Now, in verse 16, another survey of success. So Joshua took the land of the north, the mountain regions, the Negev, all the land of Goshen, Shephelah, the Arabah, as well as the mountain regions, and Shephelah of Israel. From Mount Halak that rises towards Sa'ir, as far as Baal Ga'ad, in the Lebanon Valley at the foot of Mount Hermon. All their kings he captured and put to death. Again, drove them away. They either died in the conflict or fled for their lives. Joshua waged war against all these kings for a long time. So that in verse 19, with the exception of the Hiveites who lived in Gibeon, no city made peace with the Israelites. All were taken in battle. And then in verse 23, thus Joshua took the whole land, just as the Lord had said to Moses that he would. And Joshua gave it to Israel as their heritage, apportioning it among the tribes. And from now on, the land would have rest from war, because they now control the geopolitical boundaries that God said would belong to them. Now, what follows are a series of chapters that tell us about how the land was apportioned. Chapter 12 begins with a list of conquered kings, and we've mentioned them already today. The first in verse 2 was Sahan, the king of the Amorites. The second was Og, the king of Bashan. It was in verse 6, Moses, the servant of the Lord, 
and the Israelites under his command, who conquered them, Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave possession, remember, of their lands to the Reubenites, the Gadites, and to half the tribe of Manasseh. And those land holdings were on the eastern side of the Jordan River. They will be the first to fall when there's a series of events that lead to the contraction of the nation of Israel, because they're very difficult to defend on the eastern side of the Jordan River. In chapter 13, a more detailed assessment of what was going on. When Joshua was old and well advanced in years, the Lord said to him, Though now you are old and advanced in years, a very large part of the land still remains to be possessed, that is, officially apportioned. So, that process begins in verse 8. We know about half of the tribe of Manasseh, and we know about the Reubenites in verse 8, and the Gadites, who had taken as their heritage what Moses, the servant of the Lord, had given them east of the Jordan. And from that point on, it's then detailed, <coughs> excuse me, in its geographic boundaries. The chapter then continues with a geography lesson in chapter 13 and verse 15, what the tribe of Reuben was going to control. And then in verse 24, what the tribe of Gad was going to inherit. And then in verse 29, what the tribe of Manasseh was going to inhabit. Again, just a apportionment record, which will eventually arrive at 12 individual tribes. In verse 6, and this is important for us, of chapter 14, when the men and women from the tribe of Judah were apportioned their land, they approached Joshua in Gilgal and his son, Caleb, saying to him, You know the word the Lord spoke to Moses concerning you and concerning me in Kadesh Barnea. This is all the way back in Numbers chapter 12. I was 40 years old when Moses, the servant of the Lord, sent me from Kadesh Barnea to reconnoiter the land, along with 11 others, obviously, and I brought back to him a frank report, one that said, large people, huge cities, but with God they can be taken. My fellow scouts who went up with me made the people's confidence melt away, but I was completely loyal to the Lord my God. And on that occasion, he reminds Joshua, Moses swore this oath, saying, The land where you have set your foot shall become your heritage, and that your descendants forever, because you have been completely loyal to the Lord my God. Now, as he promised, the Lord has preserved me all these years, these forty-five years since the Lord spoke that way to Moses while Israel journeyed in the wilderness. I'm 85 years old, but I am still as strong today, Caleb says, as I was in the day Moses sent me forth with no less vigor, whether it be for war or for any other tasks. So, a request. Now give me this mountain region which the Lord promised me that day, as you remember hearing. True, the Anakim are there with large fortified cities, but if the Lord is with me, I shall be able to dispossess them as the Lord promised. A man of faith. Joshua, of course, blessed Caleb, the son of Yaphunah, and gave him Hebron as his heritage. Therefore, a particular city in the land of the tribe given to Judah, called Hebron, 
remains the heritage of the Kenizite Caleb, son of Jephunneh clan, to this present day, because he was completely loyal to the Lord, the God of Israel. Hebron was formerly called Kiriath Arba'ah, for Arba, the greatest among the Anakim. And the land, again, in summary, had rest for from war. Now, again, after this, in chapters 15 and following, we'll see this next week, and detailed report about the way the land is going to be divided before a final blessing from Joshua that will lead us into the book of Judges. But we'll save that for next week since I've reached my time limit for today. The book of Joshua can be a bit tedious, and I understand that, but we do need to check it off in our table of contents. It's a valuable work to make our way through. Now, of course, I never tire of teaching, and you never tire of learning because you're all lifelong learners. By the way, I want to thank so many of you who responded so generously to my financial appeal. I lost the revenue typically generated in a quarter, the spring quarter, because of not being able to meet. Now, I've been able to continue with these truncated podcast lessons, and I do miss our personal connection. But having said that, uh, I still was deficient of funding. So many of you stepped up, and I do thank you. If you want to and haven't yet, you can uh, go to the ArizonaBibleClass.com website, click on the newsletter tab, read the latest COVID-19 newsletter uh, to find out what I'm talking about. But I do want to thank you. I've been blessed beyond measure all these many years by your good, kind, and generous support. And it goes without saying that this is why I never tire of reminding you of what a great student you are. Thank you for listening today. God bless.